Welcome to the Arthroscopy Journal podcast. I'm Dr. Chris Tucker from the Walter Reed National Military Medical Center and the podcast founding editor. Today, we are discussing revision ACL reconstruction. I'm joined by a friend and a colleague of mine, a thought leader in the field of sports medicine, an active educator and leader in ANA, and a true clinician scientist, Dr. Jorge Chala from Midwest Orthopedics at Rush University in Chicago. Dr. Chala was the senior author on the recent article titled, Consistent Indications and Good Outcomes Despite High Variability in Techniques for Two-Stage Revision Anterior Cruciate Ligament Reconstruction, a Systematic Review, which is published in the September 2023 issue of the Arthroscopy Journal. His co-authors include Varun Gopinath, Felipe Casanova, Derek Napik, Enzo Mameri, Garrett Jackson, Zeeshan Khan, Jonathan McCormick, Adam Yankee, and Brian Cole. Jorge, congrats on your work. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Chris. It's a pleasure to be here with you to this morning and uh, excited to talk about this project, which uh, I think it's important for our patients. And I think it's important for us to understand that sometimes taking one step more may lead to better outcomes. So uh, excited about this, Chris. Thank you for having me. I think for knee surgeons, the revision ACL is one of those cases that really gets us excited. It's a test of so many aspects of our skill set with so many variables that we need to take into consideration patient factors, injury characteristics, patient timeline, uh, their goals, anatomic variables, their prior surgical history, et cetera. It's truly never the same case twice, no matter how many we've done. I'm excited to tackle this fairly broad topic in a relatively brief podcast with you. Of course, dialing down on your specific focus of the two-stage revision ACL. So let's get right to it. Can you tell us a little bit about your own knee surgery practice and what motivated you to look into this specific aspect of the revision ACL reconstruction? Yeah, Chris, that's one of the main reasons why I decided to tackle this because I have a fair amount of patients that come to us for revision surgery. And as you said before, it's multifactorial and there's things like age or you know um, other things that you can't change. Um, gender and so forth, but there are things that you can change, right? And we learn more and more about the, the topics and, and, and features of the knee that we can potentially change such as the slope, such as potentially uh, malposition tunnels, um, you know, meniscus deficiency alignment and so forth that we can actually change. So I think we're getting to be more and more experts, I would say, in, in, in this topic, because when you think about the, the revision rates uh, as ACL reconstructions are increasing and our numbers, although uh, technically potentially better, our numbers are still, in my mind, unacceptable, right? If you think of a cardiac surgeon failing 20% of the cases, uh, you know, and people are on the age of 20 in their lifetime, it's, it's unacceptable to them. But we still have a, a surgery that is very good for a lot of people, but also that may have unacceptable uh, failure rates. And to that extent, I think we need to become proficient in understanding what are the things that we can fix to begin with so that we don't have uh, a failure, but also when we have a failure, just look at every single component so that we can try to prevent another failure from uh, the second surgery. The unfortunate reality of our profession is that failure is unavoidable. As you said, primary ACL reconstruction failure rates vary based on a lot of factors, but most systematic reviews recently uh, have reported an incidence between 2 and 4% with technical surgical errors contributing to many failures, one realizes that at the time of the index procedure, an ounce of prevention really is worth a pound of cure. 
I wanted to run through the common causes for surgical failure and hear your thoughts on how to best avoid those pitfalls when performing the initial ACL surgery. Of those errors, your study mentioned tunnel malposition, missed meniscal injury, inadequate fixation, and poor postoperative rehab. I'd also add to that list missed concomitant collateral injury and unrecognized malalignment, whether it's in the coronal plane or sagittal plane. Could you touch on each of those for us and share your thoughts on how you address them the first time around? Absolutely. So I think those are all things that we recognize at the beginning. And there's things that most people would be willing to tackle in an initial surgery and some people uh, potentially tackle other things in a, in a revision setting, right? Um, in the first uh, surgery, I think it's important to recognize from a meniscus perspective, two things. One, the most common ones is the Elmord or the oblique meniscus tear of the lateral meniscus, which is extremely common. Almost up to 20% of ACL injuries, as well as ramp lesions, which is that capsular, uh, meniscal capsular uh, damage, both on the on the top meniscal capsule and the meniscal tibial ligament as well of the medial meniscus. Those should be inspected and, and for sure ruled out at the time of surgery. As you said before, collateral damage can also increase the strain of the ACL and the PCL. So understanding if there's an LCL injury, an MCL injury, even if it gaps in extension, you know that that's going to be a surgical um, kind of like endeavor on the medial side as well. Alignment is something that we look very carefully. Mostly we know how the slope can uh, affect our outcomes on NCL as well as coronal plane uh, misalignment, mostly various. And those are things that, although we sometimes see it now because we're looking for them, we're not willing to correct in an initial uh, surgery. I would say most people will not do an osteotomy for an acute ACL tear. That being said, if you see a chronic case where, where there's a various thrust, for example, and um, you have an concomitant ACL, then in that primary surgery may be indicated to have an osteotomy as a, as a primary procedure. But in, acute, in the acute setting in a young patient, it's hard to justify doing an osteotomy. Uh, when you do your first surgery, I think it's critical, as we've seen in multiple reviews and multiple papers talking about failure, that you position your tunnels well. And this is a game of being able to see. So whenever you don't see the back wall, whenever you can't understand the anatomy very well, you should take your time, continue to clean until you have a pretty good understanding. Because changing sometimes, um, you know, some of these features at the time of surgery, such as putting your tunnel to anterior to a vertical, will aid into having a potentially a, a nearly failure, failure rate. So um, it's important to correct these things and understand that each of these things that we do at the time of surgery can affect the outcome of a patient, which could be life-changing, right? If you, if you have a patient that goes uh, through the OR in, in a span of two to five years, then that patient may stop playing sports and so forth. So it's, it's a big deal to, to try to get things right at the first time. Absolutely. In your paper, the stated purpose was to systematically review the current literature regarding indications, techniques, and outcomes after two-stage revision ACL reconstruction. I wanted to cover all three of those eras separately, the indications, the techniques, and the outcomes, and discuss your key findings. So could you start us off by telling what you found out regarding the indications that surgeons are using for two-stage revision ACLs? So this paper, the indications were uh, not were fairly broad, I would say. You know, some people will potentially uh, fill the tunnels when they were 10 millimeters up to 14 millimeters. 
and that makes sense, Chris, because I think it's a combination of, of multitude of a multitude of things, right? One is the location of the tunnels. I tell my residents and fellows when when the tunnel is completely off, that's a great thing because you can ignore it completely. When the tunnel is perfect, then that's great because you can use the same tunnel. The main issue comes when you have a like a, an almost perfect tunnel when it overlaps. 30, 40, or 50% with your new tunnel because you can actually get a much bigger tunnel that will aid into very poor fixation. In the femoral side, we have other techniques that we can try to do to try to get away from that. But on the tibial side, mainly if you have a, a, a tunnel that is too posterior, there's not too many ways that you can deal with that. So in my mind, I, I would do a, a two-stage revision in two settings from a tunnel position. One is when the tunnel is slightly misplaced or it's uh, overlapping with a new tunnel that I want to create and or when the tunnel is in the perfect position and it's over 13 or 14 millimeters of uh, widening. So it's uh, too wide in the setting of, of, of a revision that I will not be able to reliably get good fixation. That being said, there's some techniques in which some people can put a, a bone dowel, for example, and ream through the dowel. The problem is that without uh, you know bony ingrowth of that dowel, it's a little bit more risky, although it can be done. That's as far as indications. Uh, the second question was uh, techniques. I think any techniques that, that you do for this can work and have been shown to have uh, consistent outcomes. You can use bone chips, uh, you can use DBM. I think as long as you follow the principles, um, you should be okay. I like to use bone dowels because they allow me to ream a tunnel in the same direction that it was reamed uh, before and then get some press fit and uh, it, it's important to me because when you get a CT scan at four or five months, sometimes the CT, CT scan may not be as convincing to show bone healing, but when you go back and, and you see the, the bone ingrowth, it can be uh, quite successful and, and it, it looks quite nice. So that's why I like the, the bone dowels. One pearl that if you do use dowels in the TBS, you want to bone pack the cannulation in the middle because some of that uh, synovial fluid can come through that and cause kind of like a cyst at the time at the bottom of, of the tunnel so i would uh, encourage you to fill up that uh, little cannulation in the middle of the of the system of the dowel and finally the outcomes you know although outcomes of revision surgery are never as good as a primary set setting you can actually get really good outcomes in the 85s to 90s for most of the pros as well as a uh, avoidance of new surgery in most cases if you correct all the factors that you came with so I think, uh, although not, not a perfect situation, you can actually achieve extremely good satisfactory outcomes. Yeah, I think it's a wonderful summary of all three topics you discussed. I had a few follow-up questions um, specifically about uh, the techniques. Uh, your article implies there's a wide variety, uh, which I think there is. And you discussed uh, a wonderful pearl on how to use the bone dowels, um, which in my practice, I have similar practice of doing that along the lines of uh, uh, diverging from just what kinds of bone graft people are using. What are the timelines that you were seeing um, between stages one and two? I know people have different thoughts on how long they need to wait before reevaluating with imaging and or proceeding to stage two. What did your group find regarding kind of the general practice of that timeline and staging? That's a good question, Chris. I think it, it varies significantly. As I said before, sometimes those CT scans are not as reliable, and, and sometimes the bone healing is not as robust as you would see on a fracture, for example. And uh, that gets you very concerned, you know, to say, yeah, I think we're fairly safe to get this done, but 
I would submit to you, even if you have partial uh, healing of those bone towels or, or the bone that you have in there, when you get back in there and you read your tunnels, it looks like it looks like native anatomy. So I think we're just looking for a couple of things, which which is one that it doesn't degrade, so it's not completely reabsorbed. The second thing is that you want to see some partial healing, at least to the to the extent of the borders of the tunnel. And once you have that, I think it's feasible or reasonable to go back and redo the surgery. I would say that uh, in most cases, most people waited about four to six months to come back and, and for the revision setting and, and do just uh, normal tunnels where they belong. Another quick follow-up question. Did your group or find anything out regarding ACL graft selection for stage two? And if not, what's your own thoughts and practice on uh, the discussion about graft selection for stage two? In this study, it was all over the place, Chris, and it, I think it had to do with the primary you know, ACL because if they used hamstrings, most people, I think, would have used uh, BTB. If they used BTB in the primary setting, they used either quad or hamstrings. But in my practice, I, I tend to use BTB as much as I can. We know that the failure rates of BTB are potentially a little bit less when you look at the Danish or the Norwegian uh, registry data. You know, there's some newer data that says that it may be comparable, but for the most part, I don't think the, the graphs are an issue. I think it's a fixation method. And um, when you have bone-on-bone -bone fixation with, with, a, with a screw, I think that that is undefeated in regards to the outcomes. So in the second time around, you, you don't want to be leaving anything outside your control. And I think using this bone-tender bone with, with uh, screw fixation is potentially still the best option, at least in my hands. One more question about the nuances of uh, performing potential slope-correcting osteotomy. Uh, whether it's for varus or for posterior tibial slope or even a biplanar to correct both, what did you find regarding whether surgeons were doing that at the time of stage one with their bone grafting or were they waiting to perform it at stage two with the revision graft placement or was it variable? I think for the most part, Chris, most people do it the first time. And the reason being is that you can wait for that bone to heal and then you can actually take those staples or, or plates, whatever you use to make your, your tunnel. You have to remember that uh, most of the times the staples or the plate will be in the way of the ACL tunnel. So it can make it much more technically challenging to do your ACL at the time of doing the same osteotomy. So I think most people do it in the, in the first time. And these are really fun surgeries. You know, the, the closing wedge osteotomy can, can go a long way. As we know and we've learned from the vets, uh, tibial leveling osteotomy can actually be all they need. And I've had cases, Chris, where I've done a, an anterior closing wedge osteotomy in a 17, 18 degree slope uh, patient. And they'll come back in four months and say, Doc, I don't think I need it. I, I feel pretty good. And they're doing pistol yeah. squats and, and feeling pretty good. Osteotomies can be very, very powerful. I think we just need to understand sometimes that a biplanar osteotomy can't always correct, you know, to the same extent on both sides, right? If you do a, a medial opening wedge biplanar, um, we've shown with Robert Pratt in, in another paper uh, that was published in Arthroscopy that it's really hard to modify the slope. You can keep it keep it the same way that it was and potentially decrease a little bit even by putting a staple on the front, but you can modify it too much. Mm. So if primary issue is in the sagittal plane, that's what you should correct. So you should do an anterior closing wedge osteotomy that could be differential on the medial and lateral side, but again, you can correct a lot of the coronal plane if you do an anterior closing wedge and vice versa. If you have a lot of sagittal deformity, 
you can't do much from, from a coronal plane osteotomy. That's insightful. Now, Jorge, when meniscal pathology is being addressed, are folks doing that during stage one or two? And is that dependent more on what's being done, whether it's a meniscus repair or a meniscus allograft transplant? Um, what's been your experience with that? I think, as you said before, it depends on which type of procedure. I think most people will not buy an unstable knee. So I think most people would potentially wait for the second stage to do a transplant if needed. But if you have a meniscus repair, I see it as if you have two, two chances, right? The first chance, if, let's say you have a root tear, you put the root back, uh, you put the patient on an ACL uh, dynamic brace, and then you come back and then you have a second chance. If it tore again, you have a second chance to repair it. But if it healed, then it's one thing less out of your plate on the second surgery. And then you know that that ACL graft will be more protected than if you would be ACL deficient in a way. So I think it depends on which type of tear, but I would submit to you that in my practice, I will try to do every meniscus repair that I can on the index procedure. And then if I come back, I will check on it. If it's torn again, then I have a second chance to repair it again. And uh, if it's healed, then it's, it's great. Yeah, that's a great perspective. Now, as you said earlier, uh, we all know that compared to primary ACL reconstructions, the revision surgery tends to have less predictable outcomes. Um, as you showed in your study, patients often have lower patient-reported scores, more residual laxity, and some higher complication rates. What did you find out about the prognostic factors involved with these outcomes? And is there any modifiable factors that we can control uh, to potentially improve on those either preoperatively or intraoperatively with our techniques? I think there's there's multiple, Chris. Uh, there's the ones that we can't modify, such as age, gender, and so forth. There are some that we can modify, and they're in, in two big realms. One is the psychological issue, right? Fear for re-injury, you know, understanding that some people may not want to even go back to sports after a, a second surgery because they, you know, from a financial perspective or a mental perspective where they say, I just can't go through this anymore. We'll stop playing sports and sometimes it's not because they can't it's just because they don't want to the third factor which is the the, the one that we're, we're all excited about are the factors that we can modify surgically and i think it's it's a matter of just looking at the knee as, as an organ you know my, one of my mentors Bert Mandelbaum, used to talk about this all the time and i think you have to look at the cartilage disease you have to look at the alignment you have to look at the meniscus situation even more so there's other things they have shown to reduce retail risk for example, an antralateral complex uh, reconstruction, such as an ALL or an LAT, is something that I do in all my revision. So I think there's a lot of things that we can try to do to avoid failure, right? But a different thing is how to improve our outcomes, meaning how do we get those patients to feel just as good as, as a primary ACLs? And I think this depends on, on other things. You know, a lot of the times when you look at a revision setting, these are patients that have as we showed in our study, more meniscus tears, more cartilage damage, almost impossible for those people to feel just as normal as a primary 15-year-old ACL that just tore. But for others in which there was a, a mechanical issue or something that was uh, not done properly in, in the first procedure, I, I've had patients that say, you know, my knee never felt quote-unquote connected before. You know, it still felt a little bit lax or uh, if you have, I don't know, for example, a, a graft that was fixed in 20 or 30 degrees of flexion and they can never get their extension back, uh, as soon as you, you fix the graft in extension and they are able to get their extension back and potentially do some capsular releases to, to get that back, they actually can feel even better than before. 
So I think it depends on the case. The problem sometimes with the systematic reviews is you're pulling data from multiple studies that may not have uh, all the confounding factors that, that we know exist uh, accounted for. And I think that that can yield, you know, some data that may be not as, you know, perfect as we would hope. But again, you know, b based on personal experience, I would say that it depends on the case. If you have things that cannot be corrected so easily, such as chondromalacia and uh, things uh, of that nature, those patients may be more, you know, not, not as happy or more inclined not to achieve a, a perfect outcome. But if they do have uh, some things that can be corrected, they can have, you know, an outcome that is very similar to a primary setting. And I mean, I think even with the limited data in the studies that you use, I mean, you and your co-authors should be commended on the uh, number of questions you were able to address and answer in your systematic review. Now, you've nicely touched on several of the more contemporary topics I wanted to discuss. Um, we've already discussed the correction of the posterior tibial slope. Um, and then also you mentioned the lateral extraarticular augmentation, which I think a lot more of us are considering using um, in multiple settings, including the revision ACL. The last topic I wanted to ask you about uh, along those same lines is uh, biological augmentation. Do you think there's any uh, data to support use of uh, any various uh, biologic augmentation uh, techniques or substances or devices out there uh, to help us with the revision ACL? I don't think uh, we have enough data, Chris, uh, to routinely or systematically use biologics, at least from an ACL perspective. You know, there's other meniscus papers. There is uh, one paper that we've published with uh, my partner, Brian Forsyth, where um, there's a trial on, on, on bone marrow aspirate concentrate injected in the ACL uh, on, on allografts, which seemed to improve some of these outcomes. But I, I guess, you know, in a revision setting, I would try never to use an allograft. You know, you want to make sure they use the graft that would be the strongest and, and potentially have the least potential for failure. And um, I would say that in a revision setting, that would be a, a BTB for me. And sometimes I would even go to the other knee. If I don't feel that the grafts are, are good, I don't have a good option in the same knee. I would not hesitate to go to the other knee. And we've done this several times, and it's, it's actually a very reliable procedure. People recover very well from just that graft harvest. Um, but from a biological perspective, although it's been described and um, it's, it's out there in the literature, I don't think we have enough evidence to routinely use it. I, I don't think it's, it can hurt patients. So um, if, if patients are aware and there's no financial uh, restraint, I don't think it's a bad thing to do, but certainly not something that we, we can do from an evidence-based uh, medicine perspective. As we both know, the ACL remains the most studied topic in all of orthopedic sports medicine. And one would think we've left no stone unturned, yet it seems like the more we learn, the more we seem to realize how much we don't know. What do you think is currently the most exciting area of investigation in the ACL? Or what do you see as the most important unanswered question still yet in this area of research? I think we have, um, that's a great question, Chris, but I think we have short-term goals that we have as ACL surgeons that we need to address. You know, I think we have a contemporary genius who's uh, one of my friends, Alan Getwood, which, which, who is leading two very important studies, one that is completed, uh, Stability 1, and the second one, Stability 2, that it's underway, that I think will help uh, solve some of the contemporary questions that we have right now in regards to lateral tenodesis in, in different uh, ACL settings. I think that that's the one thing that 
will change the way that we practice, right, potentially, based on, on the results of those studies. But then we have more long-term studies that I think we, we need to do, and, and that goes to, for example, ACL repairs and more biological ways of, of healing potentially the native tissue, which I think uh, it's on its infancy right now, but I think it has some potential to be one a possible solution for us moving forward. I just don't think that the data is there as of now, but it's, it's certainly exciting to think that we can harness the, the body's own ability to heal and potentially have you know, an, a, a native tissue that it's regenerated into the wall because it, it has clearly some potentials, but I, I just don't think based on where we are right now, it's ready for prime time yet. That being said, I think that uh, in the future, as we go through this, uh, we might find ways to to make this a more optimal solution for our patients. Uh, we've covered a lot of ground on the revision ACL, uh, and Jorge, you've provided us a very nice summary of the most currently available data on the two-stage revision ACL. Did you have any other closing remarks you wanted to share with us before we close out? No, I wanted to thank you, Chris. I think, um, you know, these podcasts are phenomenal. I listen to them every time when I go to work, and uh I just enjoy learning from from this type of format. Sometimes, you know, reading a paper can be somewhat boring if uh, if you're going through this, but talking to the author and, and understanding, you know, what their purpose was and, and, and what they actually got from the paper is some, sometimes way more insightful than just reading the paper. So thank you for that. I encourage everyone to listen to this podcast because uh, at least I have a lot of fun and I learn a lot when I hear them. Well, I appreciate your feedback, Jorge. Uh, we certainly try and deliver some educational and hopefully entertaining conversations. Um, and uh, it's mostly dependent upon uh, the uh, volunteerism of, of great knowledgeable authors like yourself taking the time to share your thoughts with us. So you have uh, contributed substantially to our uh, experience. So thank you for taking the time to do that with us. Thank you, Chris. And uh, I want to uh, wish everyone a great day. Great. Thanks, Jorge. Dr. Chala's article titled Consistent Indications and Good Outcomes Despite High Variability in Techniques for Two-Stage Revision Anterior Cruciate Ligament Reconstruction, a Systematic Review, is available in the September 2023 issue of the Arthroscopy Journal, which is available online at www.arthroscopyjournal.org. This concludes this edition of the Arthroscopy Journal podcast. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Arthroscopy Association or the Arthroscopy Journal. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next time.